I sit comfortably. So good morning everyone. The title of this talk today is Frozen Views, um, particularly Frozen Views of Others, but could be Frozen Views of Self as well. And um, following through on the scene um, that I'm creating as we go along, that our aspiration is to be a no-self, you know, an open, spacious response to life. I just want to follow that through more in more specific ways, ways, you know, in terms of how that actually operates in our everyday life. But as a bit of a preamble to it, um, a couple of my um, friends and colleagues who are also Dharma friends um, who I've seen recently have uh, been giving some public talks and uh, the theme is similar <clears throat> and I sense that um, the three of us at least, if not more people, are picking up a theme that we feel we need to speak about from a Dharma point of view. And um, my friend Belinda Kong, who is a psychologist and academic and Buddhist practitioner, teacher of mindfulness, was invited recently to give a talk at um, State Parliament House, um, not to parliamentarians but just to the general public. And uh, the title of it was a, um, uh, an essay she had published some years ago, which was, um, Do We Dare Speak of Responsibility in the Same Breath as Compassion? And also my um, other friend, Dr. Ring Hong Tan, who's a psychiatrist, um, recently gave a talk on wisdom and compassion and felt the need to do that because he thought the Dharma teachings are focusing very much on compassion these days. But what about wisdom? And that um, the old Buddhist saying is you need two wings to fly, wisdom and, and compassion. And I've spoken in some of my Dharma talks recently too about the importance of wisdom, not just compassion. And on the precepts, so we're all circling around the same thing that we see where um, one aspect of Dharma, which is a very important aspect of course, compassion is being emphasised, but the whole teachings not being um, necessarily given. I guess if I reflect on it, the reason why maybe my two colleagues felt a need to give public talks on this is I think like myself, they're picking up in in public life these days is um, uh, that people are more and more can be so easily offended and and put the blame outside for why they're feeling the way they're feeling. And uh, but what about looking at the way we may harm others? You know, with our words or our actions. Where, where does that come into play? Um, Buddhism, it's not, it's not spoken about sort of um, outline, but, but in fact, if you, if you read into all kind of Dharma practice, what a, what a view is there which underscores the whole thing is the importance of personal responsibility for our actions and speech in our, in our life. So I think it's that aspect that, our, that my, my friends and colleagues um, 
want to address more publicly. Uh, where I want to focus this talk is um, on the precept, and I'm using Diane Rosetto's version of it, I take up the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility, um, which is the positive aspirational way of wording the same um, uh, precept as it's traditionally worded, not criticising the faults of others. Now, precepts are invitations to responsibility. That's what, what all of them are. And they're, they're invitations to looking much more deeply at what our own views, assumptions are of, in this case, other people, you know, and the way that we relate to other people and how that can distort or shape the way that we actually speak to, a, to other people, which may be either harmful or simply not helpful. But positively, as Diane says it, you know, how can we transform that um, open, spacious self into a way that's actually healing or positive in the way that we interact with others? The precepts, um, from a Zen point of view, are looked at from three different levels. And they're looked at from the point of view as simply moral injunctions, like guardrails, you know, so that at least intellectually we, we stay on track. You know, even if we, we want to do something that's harmful, we go on a precept, better not do that. <laughs> Red light goes on, okay, even though I'd like to, but I, I won't. Mm-hmm. That, that's the sort of the literal version of it, <clears throat> the moral, the sort of basic moral injunction of it. Um, the next level, which is more subtle, is that um, it's seen that the um, precepts are expressions of compassion. Uh, it's not just as an intellectual idea that it may not be good to hurt someone, but you wouldn't, in your heart, want to hurt someone. You know, in, in the same sense, you wouldn't want to hurt yourself. And then there's the wisdom aspect of it, which is looking at it from the point of view of um, no self and impermanence. Now, that's very interesting because um, what we often do in the way that we relate to other people is that we, we freeze them into static identities. You know, and that's what the fixed view is. And dead giveaways in the language when we, when, we, when we do that is when we use words which are absolutes. Well, he, he never does that, or she, she never does that, um, or he always does that, or she never does that. They're absolutes. So that's, that's a fixed view of someone. And if our, our, our own insight into our own experience in life is to see um, that we're a no-self, you know, is that we're just a spacious, open entity. And if our own realisation into ourselves is that um, we're, in, we're impermanent, if we extend that to others, you know, the essence of this precept, I take up the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility, is to recognise that that same Buddha nature and the other. They're impermanent. People are impermanent. They're changing all the time. 
for better sometimes and worse sometimes, but we're all changing all the time. And there's the possibility for renewal, you know, and, and the essence of the other person, even though they may be caught in their own self-centred dream like we are, their, their essence is openness, spaciousness, but they don't, they don't necessarily recognise it. So it's seeing that commonality, you know, extending the practice not just to our own experience, but what the experience of others might be in the way that we relate to one another. The precepts are really um, an important part of practice. You could say from a purist Zen perspective that if you just realise no self, and you just became an open, spacious response to life, well, you wouldn't need precepts um, because everything you do would be from that, that place. But there is a kind of truth in that. And I think that we, I think the more and more we practice, the more we move towards that, where it becomes just not something we try to do right, it's just natural. It becomes second nature that that's the way that we operate. But. We need, we need precepts as well as reminders. Um, I've seen too many instances um, in my, my Zen training and life of people who have had so-called great deep experiences of Kensho and Satori and, and are so-called enlightened. And so therefore they, what the nature of that is is that they then act in ways which are spontaneous and perhaps even unconventional and even wild, right? And all of those things are fine, providing they don't harm other people or it's not at the expense of other people. But I've seen too many instances of where someone is so-called enlightened and they're spontaneous and they're unconventional and they're wild, um, but they're harming others. And so we, we need, we need precept, precepts as part of the whole package of Zen practice, you know, to recognise whether we're really on track or not. When you, if, we, if we nail it down to an example, sometimes it's important to give an example uh, of where Practicing this precept of being open, but you know, of openness and possibility towards others, doesn't does not does not mean necessarily being nice and just saying positive things to people or never saying anything at all. You know, where there's difficulty, now that's just foolish. You know, it's not real life. Um, and uh, we often need to speak about whether you're a manager or an employee or you're a partner in an intimate relationship or a family, you're often called upon to give feedback to other people that may be negative feedback about something they're not doing correctly or whatever, or something they may do that hurts you, right? So it's required that there's a big difference between criticising someone and responding with openness and possibility. Remember, criticising is one of those John Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Um, so that's where it dovetails into Dharma practice. Uh, 
Um, but like, there's a big exam, there's a big difference, say, to give an example, uh, in saying um, you, you can never rely on Harry. You know, I just asked him to do something and he didn't do it. Right? That that's very different from saying where you soften into something neutral, where you're saying the same thing, but it has a different flavour to it, where you're saying something along the lines is that Harry, my experience is that, is that Harry doesn't always follow through on tasks, right? It's kind of like it's describing the same thing, but one is an absolute, like you just can't rely on him, it's just a pain in the ass, you know? You have fixed view. The other, the other one, is addressing the same behaviour, it's still honest about what's actually occurring, but it doesn't fix it into a view. And it's important, I think, in our practice um, to use meditation experience in everyday life to examine what leads to the fixed views, what, what actually leads to us speaking in this way about other people, which is unhelpful. And, and I think what our practice is, is that um, there's a reflective process, you know, a meditative process of the skill we're developing by doing so much meditation, where, again, you come back to your, you come back to your gut feeling, you come back to your body experience, and instead of believing your thoughts to be true, you just watch them, come back into the body and you sense what you're actually experiencing that's actually the driver behind your words. Now, whatever that might be, it could be that if, if you... And, and that requires being really honest with yourself. You know, that that's bearing witness to your own experience. That's one aspect of wisdom, seeing what's really there, not just the views or the thoughts, what's really happening right now, what's really happening in my bodily experience and in my thoughts before I speak. Is there fear there? Do I feel threatened by this other person? Is that where, where it's coming from? Okay, if it's there, then you acknowledge it right, rather than denying it. That's not my fear, he's just an asshole. No, it's that ability, this fear there, I feel threatened. So I feel threatened, maybe I need to think about that precept and how I word what it is I need to say. Or it comes from shame, you know, or what's what's there together with the fear and shame is it because I feel fearful or shameful, I've got to make myself into, into something special, I've got to be the right one. Uh-huh. And it gives us some momentary sense of being okay, but it doesn't, doesn't help at all. So what are the drivers that are there? Our, our meditation practice gives us those skills to objectively and honestly and non-judgmentally looking to what it is that we're actually experiencing before we speak. But there's other versions of it as well. Do you know, there's, um, you know, is, is our, is, is where we're coming from when we speak, coming from a position of um, aggrandizement, 
you know, needing to look be superior in some way? Is it coming from a sense of control, you know, like needing to control other people? Because if we control them, then they can't hurt us, or they can't control us, you know. There's all sorts of variations on it, some very subtle. There's some variations that also come from um, false niceness. You know, it's like having the appearance of being kind and compassionate, but there's a... <laughs> An example that comes to mind because I, I found it funny when it, when it happened was it was um, you know that um, that film Babe that was on years ago about the pig you know the lovable pig and there's a there's a there's a scene from that where um, the the babe the pig is in the household somewhere domestically. And then, then the, how the domestic cat comes up to him, you know, sidles up to have a, have a conversation with, with Bay. And she says, like very nicely, do you, do, you know, um, do you know why you're here? You know? And, and, and he said, no, oh, I'm just a friend of the farmer, you know. And it, well, he said, well, if you reflect on it, do you know, why do you think that all these other animals are here, like, you know? Like the farm has a dog, so the, the reason why the dog is here to help round up the sheep, you know, and um, and he has a horse, you know, so he can ride the horse, you know, and get around around the property. He has me here as a cat because people like cats because they look calm and nice and so on. But what, you know, why why are you here? And he, babe said, "Well, I don't know. I just thought he's a friend of the farmer." Well, it's because he's you're here because he's going to eat you. <laughs> And, and of course, Babe is shocked. At oh, no, not the farmer. He's, he's my friend. Oh, uh, have, I, have I hurt your feelings? Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm just sort of trying to point out some realities for you. you know? I mean, that, that's the version on the screen. But that happens. That happens in real life. It's like, it's sneaky, you know. So there's all kind of variations, subtle variations that can occur with this. But um, it really, the precepts really are um, a very important part of practice. And, and as I said, they're, they're invitations to responsibility, just as we have, you know, invitations to demonstrating compassion. But they they need to go together. Um, so much dharma is being transformed into a kind of therapy which is about me, right? So compassion gets transformed into self-compassion. Fine, but what about others, right? What about the way we actually relate to others? Imagine if the precepts were turned into the same self-psychology you know, I take up the way of being open and 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 uh, thinking of myself with openness and possibility. Fine, right? You know, I take up the way of not stealing from myself. I take up the way of, you know, um, not lying to myself. Right? That that all be fine things to do, but it's all about me. Right? And um, and that kind of that kind of 
over-focus on self about my well-being but not addressing the well-being of everyone um, becomes another stuck point, becomes another more subtle self-centred dream, really, that doesn't go beyond my experience. Um, But like I said the other day, Zen is relational, Dharma is relational. It's about it's about all of us together. It's ecological. It's about the trees being able to support one another. It's about all of us being able to support one another. Um, and it goes together with the other precept um, alongside it as take, I take up the way of meeting others on equal ground. They all dovetail together. If we meet others on equal ground and others life and existence and happiness is equally important to my own because we're all part of an ecology, then I'll speak to others with openness and possibility and I'll recognise their own underlying true nature of no self and I'll recognise their own impermanence and their possibility actually changing moment to moment rather than being fixed.